Hi friend, it's 2020, and let's be real. If you're anything like me, this year is not going the way you planned. It may feel lonely, scary, disappointing, or even overwhelming. But especially in times like these, and no matter what life stage you're currently in, do you find yourself longing for something better, something real? When all else has been stripped away, what matters most? Maybe like me, you wonder about things like restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love. And truth, I am on an imperfect journey of pursuing Jesus Christ and what it looks like to find those things in relationship with Him. It's a journey I committed two years ago when I dedicated my life to following Christ. And it's a journey I invite friends to explore with me, even if, and honestly, especially if, you don't know what path you're on. So for those who are skeptical, curious, or just need some encouragement, can I get an amen? (laughs) This podcast is for you. Please come along with me as we journey together towards finding something real. Welcome back to the Finding Something Real podcast. This is your host, Janelle Wood. I'm thankful you're listening today. 2020 is about clarity. And on this podcast, we've been talking about clarity around different issues, issues that I struggle with sometimes, and maybe you've struggled with them too. Last month, we talked with people about living with confidence. And this month, we're talking about living with the gospel. In other words, what difference does the gospel of Jesus Christ make, especially in times when the world feels upside down or just not as it should be? If you want to get the reflective questions that go along with each month's topic or sign up for my newsletter that shares more about this current series, you can check out those resources by visiting my website at JanelleWood.com. Just look for the section at the top of the page that says Clarity 2020. So friend, two things. Today, I am joined by a very special co-host, my Italian exchange daughter, Lucrezia. Lou, will you say hi? Sure. Hi, guys. (laughs) I'm Lucrezia. (laughs) Ah, I'm so excited you're here. And the second thing is we are super excited to be chatting with a man who has a passion for sharing and defending the gospel. He has a master's degree in Christian apologetics speaks often about the reasons for faith and how believers can use questions and best practices to speak to skeptics and seekers about faith. He also talks about the presence of God in pain and suffering. Wow. So we're looking forward to our conversation. Please welcome Alan Krostick. Alan, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, we're excited you're here. You and I um, had a brief conversation about this earlier as we were preparing for this, but I just wanted to say my 10-year-old son and I have started listening and watching some of Justin Brierley. I think that's how you pronounce his name. Yes. Um, his work out of the UK. And I know you're familiar with this program called Unbelievable. But for those listening who don't know who he is, he's a host who engages people of different beliefs and conversations surrounding faith. And when I mentioned to my 10-year-old that I was excited to interview you today, Alan, um, because you help people have similar hard conversations my son had a couple of questions he wanted to ask you. Oh, okay. <laughs> so these questions are coming from a 10-year-old. And the first is, how did you meet God? How did I meet God? Well, yeah, that's um, it's actually a really cool story. I, um, I grew up in a very strong Christian family. But um, during my uh, later teen, early 
early uh, early twenties, if you will, um, I, I was more of an agnostic. Um, I wasn't sure what I believed in terms of whether there was a God in general who existed, and I certain was wasn't sure whether I believed that any particular um, um, religion was true. So I wasn't sure about the truth of Christianity. Well, <clears throat> some right around 1996, um, actually even a little bit before then, I was diagnosed with a condition called ulcerative colitis. And if you're familiar with that, uh, that condition, it can be pretty painful. Um, and uh, it can get so bad that some people have to be operated on and have portions of their colon removed and wear a colostomy bag and things like that. So mm. um, I was pretty scared. And uh, I remember one night I was laying in bed and my father came into my room and um, he said, Alan, would you be interested in us taking you somewhere for people to pray for you? And immediately I had images conjure up in my head of like things I had seen on TV with people going in the name of Jesus, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> and, um, but you know, I, I was desperate. I'm like, yep, yeah, sure. I'm, I'm open to whatever. Um, I mean, I was just staying in pain. So the next morning, my mom goes to uh, ask around, and she was in a Bible study, and uh, one of the ladies she asked said, uh, wow, this is great you're asking this. There's this uh, evangelist or this pastor that's visiting a nearby church. She goes, I myself don't go there, but from what I understand, God has done some powerful things in his life, and people have really been touched by his ministry. Some people have even been healed. Um, <clears throat> so we found ourselves at that church that Wednesday night. It was on October 17th. Uh, uh, I, I think I first said 1996, but this was actually 1993. Um, and uh, we were in that church. It was not a very big church. We didn't go there. We didn't know anybody else that went there. Um, people were visiting from all around, and there were other teens there too, so it wasn't just me. And at one point in the service, um, he stopped, and he said, there's a teenager here God wants to minister to. And again, like I said, I look around, there's other teens in the room. And, and I want you to understand, there wasn't anything about my appearance that would draw any attention. I looked like a normal, clean-cut kid. All of a sudden, he locked eyes with me. And he walked up to me and he goes, let me tell you something. I don't know who you are. I've never seen you before in my life. Maybe you think you're in a normal church service, but I got news for you. God had your number. <laughs> he says, get up and follow me to the front. God's going to shake you up, boy. And I'm sitting there wondering, okay, what are these freakazoids going to do to me, right? <laughs> and um, so anyway, so I, I follow him up to the front, and he says, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what I see going on in your life. He says, I see similar to what, something similar to what I saw last night, because uh, he was there that whole week, and apparently something similar happened the night before. I, I don't know. He says, you got one foot in the church and one foot in the world. At that time, because um, believe it or not, I was still struggling with agnosticism even after that some years later, but at that time, I at least gave intellectual assent to the idea. But I, 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 I wasn't living for Christ at all. Um, I had my own goals, my own plans, um, the things of this world that I, that I was chasing after. And he says, tell me, tell you something, man, this world has nothing to offer you. And he says, um, he says, I'll tell you something else too. He says, the hand of God is on your life. I'm not saying you're necessarily called to preach or anything like that. I'm just saying the hand of God's on your life. And then he started calling people up to the front and he started to pray for me. And here's the thing. I'm not the kind of guy that has experiences. I am not that guy. And I've never experienced anything like this since. But as he started praying for me, 
I felt a warm sensation start in where my abdomen had been hurting and just emanate out toward my limbs. And he put his hand on my abdomen. He says, there it is right there. Be set free. And like, like that, the symptoms of colitis just were gone. Gone. It was amazing. And I went to see the gastroenterologist later that week. And um, he examined me. And I, I, I told him what happened. He examined me and he says, well, this is remarkable. He says, I mean, you're apparently in remission. He says, but what's remarkable is there's not even a trace of it. You would never even know you had it. And uh, so if, like for the first time in my life, God was no longer some nebulous abstract concept. He was a real concrete reality. And I had showed up on his radar. Um, now, for the longest time, I didn't tell anybody about that because um, I didn't want to look like a wacko. But, and I didn't want to give up the things um, that I was holding on to in my life of wanting to live my life my own way. And then later on in 1996, I had my first uh, philosophy class. And I really love that class. And I remember the professor saying, I want you to look in front of you, behind you, and to your left and your right. He says, statistically speaking, one of those people will be gone by the end of the semester. This is a hard class. And I'm thinking, well, that'll probably be me. I'll be gone. And what I found was with minimal effort, I did very well at that class. I, apparently, I was just wired to think that way. Um, you know, do not get me wrong. There were other fields I did not do so well in, but apparently this field I did great in. And um, anyway, and I really started to think critically about the existence of God and the Christian faith for the first time. And I thought, you know, well, why do I believe what I do other than the fact that this just happens to be the family I was born into? I mean, isn't what I believe just a geographical and historical accident? If I was born in the Middle East, I would probably be a, you know, I'd probably be a Muslim and believe in it fervently. But I kept coming back to that night back in 1993, and I'm like, but what do I do with that? I mean, that, that was, that's unlike anything I ever experienced. So there's got to be a God. And I kept thinking back, <clears throat> I'm like, well, maybe, maybe there's a way around that. Maybe it has a naturalistic uh, explanation. I mean, the woman my mom called, okay, maybe that's just coincidence. We got lucky. We knew there was a pastor who was there, right? Or how did he know there was a teenager that needed help? Well, what teenager doesn't need help? I mean, come <laughs> on. Of course, I didn't explain the things he said about my sister the following night, who doesn't fit that mold. But I'm like, well, I'll come back to that later. I don't know how to make sense of that, but we'll take things each step at a time. Well, how come he came to me? Well, maybe it's just because I was on the end of the road end of the row and made it more convenient. You know, and I went over and says, you know, he said I had one foot in the world, one foot in the church. I'm like, well, who does that not describe? Um, I'm like, but what about that sensation? I've never felt anything like that. And I'm thinking, well, maybe it was just some sort of unique adrenaline rush I had never felt. And maybe me getting well was just, you know, mind over matter, if you will. Maybe just the power of suggestion can be so strong. It can have a powerful effect on your physiology. So I wasn't concluding this was the case, but these were the, the, the doubts coming in my mind. And to make a long story short, or not as long as it could be, um, at the end of that process, I mean, I, I became obsessed. I looked at all the arguments for God, all the arguments against God, um, and it was a seesaw back and forth. And I really started to look into the arguments for the historicity of the resurrection. At the end of the day, I found all of that compelling, very compelling to the point where I felt like if I would reject it, I would actually be putting my brain on a shelf. Um, and and, and all, if I'm honest with myself, I think deep down inside, the whole, I mean, I, I know the Holy Spirit was working on me. Of course he was. 
but I think um, I think going over the arguments and going over the reasons um, helped me. I think God worked through that. See, and a lot of people will say, you know, you know, apologetics doesn't save people. Arguments don't save people. The Holy Spirit does. And yes, that's true. But the Holy Spirit uses means. He uses the means of preaching, teaching, argumentation, and persuasion. And I tell people, if you don't see that, you're reading a very different Bible from the one I'm reading. Um, many times Jesus would say, at least believe on the evidence of the miracles that I do, that I am who I say I am. You would have Paul who would go into the synagogues and so forth and argue and debate and reason with people, showing them that Jesus rose from the dead. You have it all over the place. And I feel like the Holy Spirit used that for me. So um, that's kind of my short story, although it doesn't seem so short, I realize. But, um, but yeah, that's, that's how it all got started with me. I love that. And I love how God used that, that journey to bring you to the point where you are today, which is obviously very passionate about um, faith. And I'll let Lou ask the next question from our 10-year-old our here, sure, <laughs> our yeah, resident 10-year-old. <laughs> okay, so um, I think it's a, really, it's a really interesting question, especially um, even from my point of view, you know, um, we told you already I'm, I'm agnostic. Yeah. Um, so his question is, what difference God made in your life? Like, I'm curious in maybe your daily life, like the small things. Okay. Well, so what difference God made in my life, even just in my daily yes. overall routine? Mm -hmm. Well, given that I knew there was a God, and given that I knew now that not only was there a God, like the, because there's many people that believe in God in a deistic sense. But there was a God who made the universe and then stepped back and doesn't really care much about human beings. But now that I knew that there was a God, um, and that not only does this God exist, but this God came in human form and suffered on my behalf in a way that I can never comprehend. Um, loved me in a way that I can never comprehend, that anybody else in this world has ever loved me. That changes the way that I view my life. It bestows enormous meaning and significance on every waking hour I have. Because I realize this life, first of all, is not all there is. I realize that everything I do in this life has a ripple effect um, that not only echoes throughout this life, even long after I'm gone, but echoes on through eternity. That my life doesn't end at the grave, but also that given that everything is not at bottom, just matter and motion, but there really is real objective meaning to the universe and that there's a purpose and there's a reason why we're here. And that also bestows even enormous significance, even on the lives of others, um, where I can look at the lives of others and realize these are people who Jesus Christ has died for. And I dare not um, treat anybody as a mere means to an end, but as an end in themselves. You know, and, and I got to be honest, there are sometimes I, I do better than that than other times. Sometimes I lose sight of, you know, things of eternal significance for things of just temporal significance. And sometimes God has to kind of give me a good kick to kind of make me wake up and see things again. But I, I, I'm reminded of, um, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of uh, Nabil Qureshi. Yes. Um, love Nabil Qureshi. And I was mm -hmm. 
really sorry to see him go back in, uh, I, I want to say it was September 2017. Yes. If I remember right. But I just, uh, he, was a, he was a great example. But for those who don't know who he is, he was a, a Muslim. And he, um, he attended Old Dominion University, not far from where I am right now. I'm in Chesapeake, and that was a, a, a university over like in Virginia Beach area. And um, he met a, I met another guy named David Wood, and David Wood was a Christian. They were both on the debate team. In a very playful way, they kind of started a debate back and forth, you know, about you know, whether Christianity was true, whether Islam was true. And, um, and in fact, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't that they were great friends despite the fact that they would have these conversations, but because they had these conversations. Each one of them understood that the other was trying to give them something, give the other one something that they thought was better. Hmm. Um, you know, of course, they each thought that they were, they held the correct belief, as most of us do. We don't believe something unless we think it's true. But the end of that three and a half year process, Nabil came to the conclusion that, wow, there's just too much. There's too much there. And he realized there's a lot of stake here. Because if you believe what the Quran says in Surah 572, that if you claim that Jesus is God, you commit the, the sin of shirk. And the one thing that the Quran says is that you must not believe. Um, you must not believe that, that, that God has a son. You must not believe, of course, you know, what I'm saying is that Jesus is the son of God. If you do, hellfire awaits. So the very thing you must believe in Christianity to be, to be saved is the very thing you must not believe in Islam to be saved. Hmm. So his eternal life was at stake. But not only that, but he knew that if he became a Christian, he would hurt his parents emotionally in the worst way that he's ever hurt them. That they will just feel utterly betrayed and feel like their heart has been ripped out of their chest. And at the end, and, and there's a lot of Muslims all over the world, if they become a Christian, they could be forfeiting their lives. Because in virtually every sect of Islam, you know, if you go apostate, there is, there is the rule that, yes, you should be put to death. Now, there's, there's, there's differences. Um, in terms of whether someone should be given so many chances, whether a person's a woman, whether whatever it is. But they all have this view where if you, you go uh, uh, apostate, you're deserving of death. Now, granted, he's here in America, and they belong to a uh, sect of Islam that was a lot more, um, what do they call the uh, Ahmadi uh, Muslims. They were more lenient in, the, in, that, in that fashion. But he, in the end, he gave his life to Christ, and it did. I mean, his parents didn't even come to his wedding. You know, it was a very strained relationship for them. But he remembered being in his room and crying. He's like, why? God, why couldn't you just kill me? He says, if you killed me, I would be an attorney with you. I would be happy. You would be happy. My parents wouldn't know. They would be happy. We'd all be happy. Why couldn't you just take me sooner? And he says he, he heard it. Like, I don't know if he meant as an audible voice or in his or in his mind, but just like so clear, God was responding back because it's not about you. And as soon as that happened, he says it was almost like he just rebooted. And he remembered looking out of the window and seeing like a random person walk by and he saw that person and he just didn't, he, 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 his whole view of other people was different. He realized that person he was looking at was someone that God prizes so much that God was willing to descend to this earth, live as a human, and die for that person in a way that that is just beyond comprehension, and it really changed the way he viewed the world. And um, and I'd, I'd have to say that about myself as well. And I mean, even even think about like like with this whole coronavirus thing going on. 
that no matter what happens, like if I got this disease and, um, and I, I don't know how bad it is. I mean, you hear, I don't know who to believe. Some people say it's horrible. Other people say it's not that much worse than the flu. Other people say if you have, if you're immunocompromised, you should worry. And I, I, I do have autoimmune issues and I, uh, and I wonder about that, but I think no matter how bad it is, no matter what happens to me in this life, it is nowhere near as bad as suffering on the cross and dying on a cross and being put on the cross um, by the very people you came to save and love um, by having that done to you. And if he can go through that, I feel like I can go through anything in this life. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to stop there because I don't know if I'm going overboard or really answering what you're, you're asking. Did he, um, did he answer the question, Lou? I think so. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> So, Alan, I watched a video of you speaking on YouTube um, about where God is when people are hurting, and you just mentioned the coronavirus. One of the things you said was nobody, this was in the video um, that I watched today, that you said nobody suffers for nothing. So I was wondering if you could share a little bit about what you mean by that. Sure. Well, you you have an extra 20 minutes? (laughs) Go right ahead. (laughs) I I love your tangents. They're really Um, good. (laughs) We're just enjoying (laughs) listening to you. Lou and I are just sitting here mesmerized. (laughs) Um, Well, I'll I'll, I'll start. I'll kick it off by starting with Job. Um, And in that sermon, one of the things I talked about, like I just shared with you guys, where, you know, where God seemingly healed me from ulcerative colitis back in 1993. Well, this last... uh, over the last six months or so, a little bit more than that, in June, I got married. June 29th, I got married. And right before then, I had symptoms. Thank you. Thank you. And she, she's wonderful, by the way. Um, <laughs> and uh, I'm loving life. But um, right before my wedding, I had symptoms what felt a lot like colitis again. And I remember thinking, why is this happening? Why? God, I, I, you, you healed me from this. Why is this back? I, this, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't understand. You know, um, I, I just don't get it. Now, it, admittedly, I realized the pastor never prayed for me to, at that time to be healed from colitis, but it happened. Um, I thought God had taken it away. And so I didn't understand. Turns out it was something called a, a ileitis. It wasn't as bad. And so it was short-lived and it's gone, thank goodness. But I didn't know that at the time. But it just seems to me whenever we suffer, it's just so natural to ask the question, why? Why is this happening? And I think nowhere in the Bible um, do we find a better example of that than, with, than in the book of Job. And if you ever read the book of Job, you know that Job was a very wealthy man for his time. He was renowned. And he was also a very righteous man. And God had blessed him with all sorts of possessions and all sorts of things, um, you know, with uh, many children, many possessions, livestock. Um, he was considered blameless in God's sight. Well, what you don't know is at the beginning of the book, see, a lot of people, when they read that book, when you ask, what is the point of the book of Job? They miss a major lesson, if not the major lesson. Typically, what they'll say is, well, you know, at the end of the book, Job asks why, and God doesn't give him an answer. He just basically says, who are you to ask me? And the whole idea is Job is, you know, we're, we're supposed to be humble, you know, and, um, you know, that God's ways are above our ways. I'm not saying that there's not an element of that that's true, but there's something else that a lot of people miss. Because at the beginning, there's a great debate that's going on in heaven. 
for all the heavenly hosts, the divine council, are there before God. And Satan is actually there as well. And God asks Satan, he says, you know, have you seen my servant Job? He's a righteous man. And Satan basically says, I'm paraphrasing here, yeah, whatever. You give him everything he wants. Of course he's righteous. Take that all the way, he'll curse you to your face. And what makes us feel very uncomfortable is in this story, God basically says, okay, whatever he has is yours, but you can't kill him. And then Satan does his work. You know, um, takes away all of Job's possessions, all his livestock are taken away, many of his workers, all of his children are killed by a natural disaster. I mean, this is not just little itty-bitty things that are happening to him, right? And it gets so bad that in one part, you know, his wife says, why don't you just curse God and die? Now, that was a non-supportive moment right there, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, but here's the thing. Throughout all of this, you know, and um, I, I remember when, when I very first heard this, one of, the, one of the best classes I took at Biola was by uh, 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 Dr. Clay Jones, um, why Does God Allow Evil? And he has a great book by the same title. He spent most of his life studying this, and it was one of the best classes I ever took. I highly recommend that book if you guys ever get a chance to, uh, to, read, to read it. Um, but the, but, but the, the question I like to ask people is, what is the only thing that Job had to do to humiliate Satan in the heavenly realms? And the answer is this. The only thing he had to do in the midst of all that suffering was to continue to honor God. That's it. So long as he continued to honor God in the midst of all that, he humiliated Satan. Well, how so? Well, because not only would it prove Satan wrong, but it would also, not only Satan would see it, but all the heavenly hosts would see it too. And it would prove to even the angels in heaven that there are some beings that will live their lives completely miserable and still continue to honor God. And it would also justify God's judgment of Satan as well. Now, I know it seems like I'm going on a tangent, but I am coming back around <laughs> to your question. And let's remember, who was Satan? What, well, what did Satan used to be? Well, he used to be one of God's angels. Um, right? If you, if you believe what we read in Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel 28, he was once an angel, but he rebelled. Right? Now, we might say, well, why did he rebel? And some people might say, well, you can't really know something like that. How can you know something like that? Now, it's true that the Bible tells us precious little about Satan's rebellion, but precious little is not nothing. Um, why does anyone rebel? Doesn't anyone rebel because they think they deserve better? I mean, isn't, isn't the idea, I deserve better, the foundation of all rebellion? Hmm. The way I see it, if anybody has teenagers, you know that much, <laughs> right? Um, you know, so that's basically what, what Satan did when he, when he basically was telling God, you know, take, you know, Job only surf, uh, serves you because you give him everything you want. He wants. What was the implication of that? If you had given me everything I ever wanted, I never would have rebelled either. Well, newsflash, you flash forward, uh, flash forward in the story. Job does continue to honor God and Job prevails, right? Um, proving proving Satan was wrong. There are some beings that will continue to honor God. And so what that means is when we experience hardship and suffering, but continue to honor God, we justify Satan's judgment and humiliate him in the, in the heavenly realms. And there was a story that I shared in my sermon that I'll also share now 
Um, are you guys familiar with uh, uh, Joni Erickson Tata? Do you know who she is? Yeah, I've watched her movie and I've watched some of her talks on YouTube. She's awesome. Oh, okay. <laughs> she, she's, she's phenomenal. Um, but for those who don't know who she is, when she was 17, she had a diving accident, which resulted her into being a quadriplegic. Um, and she had to, she had to go through a lot to, to come out the other side of that. I mean, she wrestled with her own doubts and anger toward God and all the rest, I, I, as I'm sure any of us probably would. Um, but during that time, after it happened, when she was in a rehabilitation center, I think it was in Maryland, one of her roommates was a girl named Denise, uh, who was also a believer in Jesus. But here's the thing you got to know about Denise. Um, Denise, when she was 17, was a very happy and popular high school senior. And one day she was running up the stairs and she tripped. She fell down because her knees got weak. So when she got home, she went straight to bed thinking, I'll sleep it off. But when she got up for dinner, she found she was paralyzed from her waist down. And then a little bit later, she became paralyzed from her neck down. And then she went blind. And turned out she had a very rare form of a rapid progression multiple sclerosis. And so she would lay there in her hospital bed. And after a while, her friends stopped coming to visit. And eventually it was just her mom who came every day to read to her. And she had to lay in that lonely bed for eight long years before she finally died, I believe at the age of 25. Now this really bothered Joni because she saw that and she's like, this, this bothered, I, I just don't see any point to her suffering at all. I mean, here was a girl who loved Jesus, never complained, um, but nobody saw her suffering. It's not like anybody could see her suffering and what she was going through and think, you know, like, wow, I want what you have. What is, you know, no one saw that. Her suffering seemed pointless. And so later on, she shared some of these, these feelings with some of her friends in her Bible study. And one of her friends turned up, I believe, it, I think the passage is Luke fifteen ten. I might be wrong. You might have to double check me on that. But it was a verse where it talked about how even the angels in heaven rejoice over just one sinner who repents. And then they turned to Ephesians 3.10, which talked about how even the angels in heaven learn about God's wisdom by watch, watching what goes on in the church. In other words, by watching your life, mm -hmm. they learn about God's wisdom. And of course, had they thought about it, they could have gone to the book of Job, where all the angels in heaven, a, a divine heavenly council, and Satan himself watch Job's suffering. And then Joni said, oh, I get it. I get it now. She didn't suffer for nothing. She wasn't alone in that hospital room. There was someone there, a great many someones. No suffering is for nothing. I love the way that, uh, I, I, I think it was Tim Keller um, put it. And I use this in my sermon, but he, he, he said, imagine it this way. What if I were to tell you that tomorrow, for one day only, there would be a special camera that would capture everything you did, everything you said, and everything you thought, and put it on television and broadcast it around the world, where perhaps maybe billions would see it. Would that make a difference to how you lived your life tomorrow? And, and of course, the answer is yes, because that would bestow tremendous meaning and significance on even the most trivial moments in our lives, right? Yeah. Um, now, on one hand, it would be scary because you'd have to be on your best behavior. But on another hand, it would be thrilling because maybe you're thinking, you know, there's some things I've always wanted to tell the world, and now I really can't. It would bestow enormous meaning on everything, everything you did. 
But see, here's the thing. Don't you see, if Christianity is true, that's already happening. You're already on camera. There is a really real spiritual world out there, and you're already on the air, so to speak. Everything you done, you do is done in front of billions of beings, and God sees it too. And as Joni wrote, she goes, she wrote this about her friend uh, Denise. She goes, she goes, you know, all the, how, how did she put it? She goes, all the, uh, both angels and demons watched amazed as her uncomplaining and patient spirit rose as a sweet-smelling savor to God. No suffering is for nothing. And what's amazing about this is, you know, what follows from this for you and I is this, that our finest hour, your finest hour in this life is not when you're lying on that beach in Hawaii, soaking it up. Your finest hour is not when you finally get that promotion or that big raise you're looking for. Your finest hour is not when you get married or even when you have your kids or see your first child. Your finest hour is when it feels like all hell is raining down on you. Your life is falling apart, and yet you still turn to God and say, I will still continue to honor you. That is when both men and angels stop and watch and wait to see what's going to happen next. Wow. This is good stuff. So Alan, what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to pause this episode. We are going to cut this episode in two. I know you are not done sharing and you have a lot more to share on this topic. And this is very, um, very interesting. And um, it takes a while to process all this information, but I'm so glad you're here to share with us. And I can't wait to have you back um, for the next episode. So if you're listening, come back soon because we're not done talking to Alan and you don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to the Finding Something Real podcast. If you love this series or even if you're simply finding it moderately entertaining while living the limbo quarantine life, hey, that works too. Hit subscribe and come back next week when I'll probably be talking with another guest about finding something real in times of detours and disappointments. And if you're on Instagram, please come find me. I share Instagram live weekly podcast recaps at Janelle underscore M underscore Wood most every Friday at 1145 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. So please join me for questions and fun live awkwardness. (laughs) You can also find some study guides I've created that I hope add joy and encouragement and challenge to you during this time. You can find those on my website at JanelleWood.com. Just look for Clarity 2020 at the top of the page. And now, just so you know, if you only remember one thing about this podcast, I hope that it's this. No matter who you are, Jesus Christ loves you and you have a purpose. May you truly believe it, friend. Until next time.